65 uh, run up to a scene and there's a guy laying on the ground and I say the words, is he alive? What do I mean? Well, I mean, is he physically breathing? Um, in the same breath, I can look at you um, a few minutes later and say, hey man, how's life? Right? And it's, it means something completely different. And so in English, we just have one word that means these separate things. And so in your, um, in your Bible, when you read the word life, uh, it's, in English it always says life, but in the original language, in the original Greek, there's actually three words um, for life. Um, and let me go through these real quick. This sounds really boring, but there's a point to it. The first Greek word they have for life is, and I, and I may pronounce these wrong, and if I do, um, no one's going to know because I'm going to say it with confidence. And so uh, the first Greek word is, is bios, and what that means, it, it refers to physical, literal life. It's where we get the word biology, okay? So we're studying the, the Gospel of John. The word bios, physical, literal life, is used zero times in the Gospel of John. None. But you'll notice that the word life is used over and over and over again. Another word for life in the Greek is the word suke or psyche, I don't know. Uh, but it is the psychological life of the human soul. That means our mind, our will, and our emotions. Okay, it's where we get the word psychology. And this is word, this word is used a couple times in John. Okay, in the Gospel of John, when you see the word life, a few times it means your mind, your will, your emotions. Uh, the last word for life is zoe, which refers to the uncreated, eternal life of God. It's a state of one who is possessed by vitality and someone who is animate. It's the absolute fullness of life, um, and it's life real and genuine and active and vigorous. And this is the, the word life. In the Gospel of John, when you read the word life, most of the time it's that word right there. Okay? And so when Jesus says, I've come so that you may have life, he's not talking physical breathing. He's not talking necessarily uh, about our soul, mental well-being all the time. What he's talking about is this inner spiritual vitality, this animating force that makes us active and vigorous in our uh, spirits, right? And so despite how our bios is doing, despite how our psyche is doing, our zoe can still be satisfied. Are you following me on that? And so when Jesus says, I've come so that you may have life, he's saying, hey, by the way, sometimes your bios is going to go downhill. And he might even say, and sometimes your psyche this life, this, this mental state, your will, your emotions, sometimes they're going to be all over the place. But despite all of those, he says, you can still find Zoe in me. You can still find this vitality and this animating force despite those other things uh, that are happening. And so as we're studying John, I hope you're reading through it yourself. I hope you're noticing the word life. I hope you're noticing the word light. I hope you're noticing the word believe. Okay, if you remember, uh, we said the word belief does not appear in John. It's always to believe. And that's an active verb. Because we want to make sure that our belief is active. That it's leading to something. Okay, if all we have is belief, we could compare it to like belief is a noun. Right? And if, if I have belief, it's something that...
take off and I could set on a shelf and walk away from. But if I am believing that's something that's with me, that's, it's, it's uh, affecting my day to day. It's affecting the way I look at my neighbors. It's affecting the way I look at my house. It's affecting the way I look at my boss and my employees and my spouse and my kids and my friends. It's, effect, it's like a filter that changes the way um, I see things. And so this morning, we're in John chapter 10. We're going to see Jesus continues uh, these I am statements. And remember, the purpose of him disclosing these I am statements is why? So that we may have life and have it to the fullest. That we can have life and have it to the fullest. Ooh, excuse me. So John chapter 10, I'm going to start reading there. Uh, okay, and this is an instance where John chapter 10, this chapter division, remember your chapter divisions are not inspired of the Holy Spirit. The chapter divisions were added later, and it was supposed to help. Um, and sometimes the chapter divisions, they really divide up certain thoughts uh, real well, and they help organize it, but sometimes it kind of cuts down in the middle. So, uh, so what I want to point out is at the end of John chapter 9, I'll just go through John chapter 9. It says, Jesus heals a man blind. It says the Pharisees investigate the healing. Uh, and then it says Jesus talks about spiritual blindness. And so at the end of John chapter 9, just verse 40, and all I'm doing here is just setting the context so we know what's happening. It says, some Pharisees who were with him, heard him say this and asked, what are we blind to? And Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim you can see, your guilt remains. And then immediately, chapter 10, verse 1 starts. Okay, this is not probably the best way, the best place to put a chapter division. So that's the context, is Jesus is sitting here speaking to these Pharisees. Uh, to the guys that found all their righteousness through what they have accomplished. This, these are the same guys that, that in, in the just moments before Jesus had healed a blind man, and they, they missed it, right? And so this is why he's saying, if you were blind, you would not be guilty, uh, because he's, they, can't, they can't see him, right? He's literally healed a guy born blind, and they don't see who he is, Instead, they're complaining that he's healing someone on the Sabbath. And talk about missing the main point, okay? And so that picks us up in chapter 10, uh, verse 1. So Jesus, again, in the same context, is speaking to these guys. He says, I tell you the truth. The man who does not enter the sheep pen by the gate, but climbs in by some other way, is a thief and a robber. The man who enters by the gate is the shepherd of his sheep. The watchman opens the gate for him, and sheep listen to his voice. He calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he has brought out all his own, he goes on ahead of them, and his sheep follow him, because they know his voice. But they will never follow a stranger. In fact, they will run away from him because they do not recognize a stranger's voice. And so Jesus, he's painting this picture. And part of the issue here is when Jesus talks about the sheepfold and the gate and the shepherds, the, the difficulty here is that in this context, everybody knew exactly what he was talking about, right? 
6, he says, Jesus used this figure of speech, but they did not understand what he was telling them. Therefore, Jesus said again. So he's going to help explain what's happening. He says, I tell you the truth. I am, there it is right there, the gate for the sheep. All who ever came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. The thief only comes to steal and kill and destroy. But, here's our verse I was referencing earlier. I have come so that they may have, what's the word? Life. And have it to the full. And so, in this little um, illustration that Jesus paints with this sheep and shepherd, we're going to get two of his I am statements. One is this I am the gate. And then the next one is the next verse. He says, I am the good shepherd. And so to, today we're going to look at when he says, I am the gate. What is he talking about? So let's identify a couple of uh, the people here. Uh, verse 7, he says, I tell you the truth. I am the gate for the sheep. Okay, so stop there. Again, this is where they would really know what he was talking about, but we probably don't. Any sheep herders in here? No? Okay. I didn't even have to wait. So what this was, was at, at this time... Um, Everyone was familiar with sheep herding, and at the end of the day, uh, you know, you have a shepherd and you have his sheep. When it talks about this sheep fold, what it is is it's just a, a little pen that the sheep would go uh, for nighttime to keep it as simple as possible. And usually it was just a bunch of rocks uh, set up around because they could find plenty of rocks. Um, sometimes this little pen set off by itself, sometimes it was attached to their homes. And, you know, the, the, the fence was only about this high, right? Um, and in Israel, there's not a lot of wood. Um, so there's not a lot of wooden fences. So they would build these little sheep pens, these little sheep folds, so that at night the shepherd would say, hey, come on in here, and the sheep would, would all follow each other in there. And then here's the thing, is they didn't necessarily have gates. Uh, what would happen at night, the shepherd, his entire job was to watch after these day and night. And so what a shepherd would do is where the opening of the sheepfold was, was the shepherd would literally lay down or sit down uh, right in the opening. Okay? And so he was literally the door of the sheepfold. Are you all with me on this? So this is why, as Jesus is explaining this, everyone's kind of like, okay, we, we, have, we know how a sheepfold works. We know what's going on. Okay? And so, uh, look what goes on here. He says, I tell you the truth, I am the gate for the sheep. And then look who he's talking about. All who ever came before me were thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. So this is where it gets a little bit awkward. Remember, who, who is in the audience here? Is it just him and his disciples? No. Who's he, who's he talking to right here? The Pharisees. Okay. This is where it gets a little uncomfortable. Is that Jesus says, I am the gate. And he says, anyone who comes before me, and he probably gave him a little side eye. He says, are thieves and robbers, and my sheep will not listen to them. And he says, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. He will come in and go out and find pasture. 
And then look, it gets even more awkward. Verse 10, he says, the thief, which by the way, who's he talking about? These Pharisees, these, these false teachers, these men that claim to have the truth, but are actually walking in darkness. This teaching that claims to satisfy, but actually leads to death. He says, the thief, this false teaching, comes only to what? Steal, kill, and destroy. But I have come, so this is Jesus, the gospel of Jesus Christ, so that they may have life and have it to the fullest. And so, let's stop there for a second. So Jesus paints this picture that there's this sheepfold, that there is this group of people that are his, that the door, what is he doing? Well, the door protects, the door keeps the sheep from getting out, keeps wolves from getting in. And then Jesus also says that there have been people who have snuck in, tried to sneak in by not using the gate. And they are liars and they're robbers and they're thieves. And this is his point as he's saying, these, these people that present false theology, false gospels that create and, and uh, preach false um, promises, in the end they will destroy you. And he says there's, there's one source that will lead to life. So, so let me pause there. Let's connect this to 2020, right? We are constantly being discipled under false gospels. This is so relevant for today. There is a series of promises, of programs, a series of possible relationships that all promise to give life but in the end, lead to death. In the end, it steals all joy. It kills all life. And it destroys all relationships. Right? Just, just think about, just personally, uh, for yourself. Uh, that's what the word personally means. I just realized that I said that. I was stupid. But think about this in your own life. How many times has, this, has a false gospel come along? That a false promise that says, hey, Russell, if you achieve this thing, if you can get this thing, you will be satisfied. If you can get this thing, then you will have vitality in life. And how many times have maybe we gotten that thing, and what is the end result? Death, right? I think most everybody in this room, I think some of y'all maybe not, I think everybody in this room has set that goal, that standard, has, has, has bowed down to that promise. And I, my guess is everybody in this room has reached that promise and found it lacking, right? Do we have stories of that, right? Maybe it's that if I can just achieve this thing, then I'll be satisfied. If I can finally get the job, if I can get the money, if I can get my spouse to cooperate, if I can get my kids to do this thing, if I can get this achievement, and I think most of us, I think some of us, maybe not, most of us in this room have met that goal and found what? It's okay. It, it, it didn't come through on its promise. But this is, this is what I want to point out, is that we live in a world that constantly will preach false gospels, that constantly will say, hey, here's, here's what the gospel uh, of Jesus is, is that if you do this or this or this, you will receive uh, life. And Jesus says... And this is so powerful. He says, hey, when, when these false promises are coming to you, he says, do you know what I am? I am the gate. He says, I am the one that will protect you 
from that. Because what did a shepherd do when the sheep were comfortable, when the, when the sheep were safe? He literally put himself between the sheep and any threat. And he says, I will be your protector. You trust in me, I will protect you from these false gospels, from these false promises. And so my point being is that every generation has a false gospel. I say this a lot. Every generation has a false gospel, a false promise, and it comes in many different forms. Hey, did you uh, did y'all know this is an election year? Did y'all know that? Anyone notice? What? I know, right? Um, and so, what I want to point out is the entire, not the entire world, not the entire world. Most of the United States, there's a promise being made. Are you, are you following on this? There's a false gospel being preached to all of us. And, and I truly believe that most people were hearing this. Yes, to 
anytime someone asks, well, most of the time, when someone asks, how's church going, do you know what I want to say? 35. And they go, what? And I said, 30, 35. That's how many people are in our service on Sunday morning. Because the bottom line is, many people, that's, that's all they want to know. Why is that? Because this is a false gospel that says your, your faithfulness is equal to your success. And the opposite is also true. That when, when we appear unsuccessful, then that means that we are being unfaithful. Again, this is a false gospel. Uh, this is what I mean here is that um, I guess it was about five years ago, five or six years ago, Kinsey and I, we started looking at our finances and we started looking at where our money's going and, and we, we started talking about what vision do we want for our money and we said we, what we want to do is instead of trying to um, increase the amount of money we make in order to find some sort of freedom, instead of doing that, we said why don't we just decrease the amount of money we need? Because that's where we can find some financial freedom there. And we believe that's what the Lord's called us to do. And so, you know, we were, like most people, we made this much money and we were living probably about here. And we looked around and we and we realized, you know, Kinsey was working full time. We did that thing where we stopped and looked, you know, we're paying for a house that we're never at, you know, uh, to, uh, for our cats to live in more than we do. Uh, and we're paying more for... You know, like babysitters that, you know, to have someone else raise our kids. And we thought, this is kind of silly. And so we started down a path of, for years and years, we said, why don't we just decrease what we need? Um, and you're like, oh, you're a tiny home person? No, we're not. Okay. Uh, but we wanted to, we wanted to just need less and less. And so we started going down that path and we felt like the Lord said, I want you to sell your house. And we said, okay, we'll sell our house. And, and, and we said, what do we do? And he says, just move into an apartment for a while. Okay, and so we, we sold our house and moved into a little two-bedroom apartment, and that was right when we had Ross as well. Um, and at this time, that was also when I uh, resigned from uh, Colonial Hills as the youth pastor, and we were able to leave there with, uh, with a great history, and we still love those people, and they still love us. Um, and so then we just started attending Colonial Hills like, uh, like normal people, like y'all, like regular pagans, you know. Um, so, sorry. Uh, and, but we, we started to notice something, is that, and, and this isn't, I'm not trying to pick on anyone, people started kind of pitying us because they found out we moved into an apartment, uh, we found out we're driving older cars, and I would have people that they would come up and they'd say, hey, Russell, how are you guys doing? And I'd say, we're doing great. And then they would do this. Yeah, but how are we all doing? And I would go, we're really doing well. Now, now why are they? Why do people do that? Because this false gospel that they would see someone that appears unsuccessful. I'm downsizing my home. I'm living in an apartment, which, by the way, is awesome. It's just awesome. Something breaks, you just call and they take care of it. And, and people saw this, and instead of talking with me, all they looked at was how the world defines success, and they made the assumption that, oh, the, the, some, there's got to be a problem. There must be some unfaithfulness somewhere. And so, we, I mean, that was a regular conversation. Hey, how are you guys doing? Like, and they're bracing for this, and we're like, we're doing great. Like, we really are. I mean, even so much as there was one day, and I'm, I'm not really complaining 
there was one day that uh, one of the pastors at Colonial Hills, whom I love, but I don't have his permission to say his name, so I won't. Uh, but he came up and he said, hey, hey, come over here real quick. And I said, yeah, what's up? And this is on a Sunday morning. And he said, this is not for me. And he reaches in his back pocket and he pulls out an envelope and hands it to me. And there's $500 cash in it. And he says, this is from one of our church members. And by the way, incredible church. And he said, this is from one of our church members who just wanted to help you guys out. Okay, so listen. We took the $500, first of all. <laughs> But we kind of said, okay, thank you. Now, wonderful, uh, wonderful expression of love. But what's it based on? It's based upon this false gospel of, oh, they're living in an apartment. Something must be going bad. There must be some unfaithfulness. They must be struggling. Right? And so notice, even a good act that's based on something that's false, it's, it's preaching something that's not the true gospel. Do you see that? And, and this, this was kind of the, the general felt thought we get. And then even today, you know, we continue to kind of downsize. And man, I'm telling you, I'm not here to talk about money. You want to find financial freedom? Stop trying to make more money. That's a false gospel. And just need less. And you will start to experience freedom the way that God designed it. Right? And so anyways, uh, that's one of our false gospels is that faithfulness equals success. The second one, I'm only going to mention a, a few words on it because we talk about it all the time. This false gospel, I call it the isolation gospel. And that's this absolutely straight from hell theology that it's just me and Jesus. It's just my own personal Jesus and me. It's this, it's this false idea of to be successful means I'm, I, I don't need any of you. Like, like, right, that a successful Christian stands up and says, look at how wonderful I am. Look at how successful I am. And by the way, hey, you, I don't need you. I don't need you. I don't need you. And I don't need you. And it's this false idea that, that we're supposed to become our own uh, little uh, church, that we're, that we're in. And it's even this false idea that um, in Colossians it says, Christ in you, the hope of glory. And when we see the word you, what do we think? me. And it's not you, it's y'all. In the original Greek, it's Christ in y'all. And so that's the second false gospel is this isolation one. And the third one I want to talk about and I find it personally devastating is this false gospel of perfectionism. That if it can't be perfect, it's not worth doing. Uh, flip over to Luke chapter 10. There's a really beautiful story in Luke's gospel on this. Luke chapter 10 and we'll start in verse um, 38. I've got a couple things I just want to read um, on this false gospel of perfectionism. And man, if you want to talk about a thief coming to steal, kill, and destroy, live in a house of perfectionists. Um, maybe some of you were raised underneath that burden. Uh, maybe some of you are still in that household and you know you know if you were raised under the false idea of perfection is the only standard, you know that will steal, kill, and destroy any and all joy, right? You can just nod your head, right? We've all experienced it. And the interesting thing is that it seems that perfectionism is on uh, the rise. I'm going to quote something uh, from Psychology Today. 
it says that there's both internal pressures and social components that they that they really have looked at the past 30 years and they say it seems that perfectionism is increasing with with every passing year uh, they say there's greater academic athletic and professional competition um, even with kids now with year-round sports that are openly competitive and even the fact that you have like a family that will organize their entire life around the kids sport activity right uh, and it creates this overly competitive overly perfectionistic society that's not realistic uh, they even say that social media and social comparison add to this right that we live in this world that on social media it really should just be called social comparison let's be honest right we're not really interacting with one another all we're doing is comparing one another and even with social media and all of our technology remember guys we live in a false fake world okay um, when you when you catch up with someone on social media please remember it's false it's fake it's not real. This idea that their life is perfect. Look at our vacation. Look at the picture of the dinner I just made. Here's a picture of my legs on the beach. Don't know what that one's about. But just stuff like that. It's like, here's, here's my life in a snapshot. This is just so normal for me. You know, here's a picture of me holding coffee. Why do I need a picture of you holding coffee? Okay, that's fine. Just do it. That's fine. But it's, it's all fake. It's false. They're always smiling. And, and they're saying that this is really adding to this. Um, and remember that everything's edited. Everything's filtered. There's cutting, cropping, pasting. And as a result, uh, we are constantly comparing ourselves to each other. Medical News Today says that individuals believe their social context is excessively demanding. That others judge them Harshly, and that they must display perfection to secure approval. Again, this is medical news today. And they're saying, here's the outcome. And there's multiple uh, research uh, 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 tests on this. Is that this perfectionism society, it says they're linking it with higher uh, rates of anxiety, depression, eating disorders, even high blood pressure, cardiovascular disease, and even suicidal thoughts. Nearly 30% of undergrad students experience symptoms of depression, and perfectionism has been widely associated with that. Over 50% of people who died by suicide were described by their loved ones as perfectionists. Another study confirmed that more than 70% of young people who died by suicide were in the habit of creating, quote, exceedingly high expectations for themselves, unquote. And the, the, the trend seems to be rising, right? And so again, let me back up for a second, guys. This is one of our false gospels that we are being barraged by constantly. Right? Is that if, you, if it can't be perfect, it's not even worth doing. Right? And that you, it, our world is so hyper-competitive that people are just giving up, uh, literally. And so look in Luke chapter 10, verse 38. This is a beautiful story of uh, Martha and Mary, who are sisters. And this is it's a great image of, uh, you're going to see Martha. Martha seems to be a perfectionist. 
concerned about making sure everything's set up. She's more. She seems to be more concerned about feeding people, about making sure everything's just how it is. And she she's going to miss the main point of what's happening uh, right in front of her. Let's read this real quick. Chapter ten, verse thirty-eight. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who, look at this, sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said. Okay? And then what's the very next word? But Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. Okay, so, so get the picture here. Literally, Jesus comes to, to this uh, chick's house and Martha, or let me say Mary, what she does when Christ is in her uh, sister's house, what does she do? She sits and she just listens. And then you have Mary, I'm sorry, then you have Martha who appears to be the perfectionist. What's she doing? It says she's distracted by all the preparation. She's the one looking around and saying, hey, wait, the, the table's not perfect. Oh, wait, hold on, the mashed potatoes need to be more mashed. Hold on, no, wait, those cups don't match. Get the matching cups. That's, that there's all these things that need to be done, and she has this standard that she's trying to meet. And, and then there's, here's Mary who's saying, hey, I'm going to sit here and listen to the Lord. And then look at, uh, continue in verse 40. It says, she came to him, that's Martha, came to Jesus and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do the work by myself? Tell her to help me. And then verse 41 says, Martha, Martha. And what I think happened there is I think Martha, again, I think she's such a perfectionist. I think she's so pragmatic. I think she's so practical. I think she's complaining to Jesus, but she's still working. But even so much that Jesus has to go, Martha. Martha. He says her name twice. And he finally gets her attention. The Lord answers, you're worried and upset about many things. But only one thing is needed. And Mary has chosen what is better. And it will be not taken away from her. And so we see this image of this lady who seems to be so pragmatic and such a perfectionist that she misses what's right in front of her. She misses this, the, the main thing. And I think this is such a great image of our culture today is that we're so pragmatic, we're so perfectionistic that we miss uh, what, we, what we could be doing. And the way this manifests itself, and again, this is from those science journals that says many adults, if you're a perfectionist, many people will avoid challenges. It says you, you have a rigid, all-or-nothing thinking. It says you experience toxic comparisons. It says you have a lack of creativity. And this is my opinion, and so you can you can always take or leave my opinion. My opinion is is this is the reason, one of the reasons so many adults are so boring. Honestly, this is the reason I think with so many adults that I can talk to people and say, hey, what do you do for fun? Or I say, or I say this, what do you do in your free time? Or I say, hey, what have you been learning? And almost all adults, what's the answer? What free time? Or what what learning? Nothing. Like, I, I believe, and this is my opinion. 
they do. That, that we're, we're painting and we're enjoying our painting and we look and we, and we watch Bob Ross and we say, I can never do that, right? Or something happens around the age of 14, 15, 16 that maybe you're out playing basketball and you realize you're never going to have a college scholarship and you realize you're never going to be as good as that guy. And this is, I believe, this is why at that age people stop learning. I think we stop because in our world, Pick, pick, pick anything. Pick anything. Cross-stitching. Baking. What you do is you go online and what is what is put in front of you? Absolute perfection. Are y'all with me on this? And, and what happens to us is it's this toxic comparison. And I believe this is why so many adults, we don't even try. I think this is why adults just stop learning. And honestly, why some of us are so boring. Did you know Jesus came that you could have life? And, and he said, not only life, but you could have it to the fullest. And I think believers, we need to be people that we have this life about us. That we're always learning new things. Like that even we're like, hey, I'm learning how to paint. Come paint with me. I'm learning how to garden. Come garden. And man, do you want to do you want to preach the gospel of Jesus to others? One way to do it is to do something not well and find great satisfaction in it. I'm telling you. But something happens when we start comparing ourselves. I think it happens right at middle school because that's when you start learning uh, where do you stand? What's your grades? Are you, oh, you play football? A team or B team? Varsity? Oh, okay. And we're constantly, and it goes on and on and on. And I believe like this is why uh, so many people, they, they're just lifeless. Right? Like I started about a year ago, I started, I was up in Oklahoma. We were visiting my family and my brother-in-law. Uh, it was the night before he normally goes and plays hockey the next morning. And he says, hey, you want to go play ice hockey? And I've never played a day in my entire life. Ever, ever, ever. And when someone offers, do you want to go play ice hockey, what do you say? You go, yeah. Right? Part of me, honestly, part of me said, no, never done that. But I said, sure, let's go do it. And so I went and played, and guys, I had so much fun. And so since then, I've started playing some, not since the pandemic or, or, or whatever, but I'll drive to Dallas, and I'll play, like, pickup games and stuff like that. And, and here's the thing. I'm terrible. I'm bad. But here's the also thing. No one's having as much fun as Russell, okay? And there's several things. I mean, so bad that there would be times that I would get the puck, and the other team would say, you got it, big guy. Like that bad. Because they realized when Russell has the puck, we're going to get it back real quick. Like it's that bad. And, and so, but this is the deal. is I want to be a guy that just says, I want to learn how to play hockey and it's fun. And I, I want my children to see me not be perfect at something and find great joy in it. Because my joy doesn't come from the thing, but from the creator of the thing, Jesus Christ. Are y'all with me on this? And so this is why, like, man, I, like, we need to be people that we are fun and outgoing and that we're learning new things and stop being afraid. There's the word. Stop being afraid to try some of these things that God has put in your heart. Do you remember the day you gave up? I mean it. Do you remember the day you said, I'm just going to hit cruise control and this is as good as it gets? Guys, life is beautiful. Do you know that? It's incredible. There's so much out there. There's unbelievable people. There's
quarantine, it's changed all of us. Apparently, Kinsey and I are snake people now. We were coming out of quarantine and we have two ball pythons now. Why? Just because we thought they were cool. We said, let's get some ball pythons. And they're such cool critters. Like, there's so much fun and we want to get chickens. Um, just this last week, Elabelle, she said, hey, I don't want to take uh, 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 gymnastics anymore. She says, I want to do Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And we said, let's do it, Chica. And so Russell might be taking Brazilian jiu-jitsu. And I'm going to be bad at it. But I'm just going to try some new things, guys. And, and please hear me say, this is life. This is life to the fullest. I'm not going to sit at home and be afraid. I'm not going to sit there and compare myself because of this false gospel of perfectionism. And to be honest, this is why uh, some, man, it's just everywhere. This is why so many people, even in the church family, if I look at you and say, will you pray for us? What do most people do? No. Why? Because they're afraid that their prayer won't be, what's the word? Perfect. And you want to talk about it's affecting the church. I mean, people are afraid to help out. People are afraid to, to, to become leaders. People are afraid to do this or that. Sure, I can lead worship. Sure, I can lead a prayer meeting. Why? Because we're, our standard is absolute perfection. And Jesus never, ever, ever called us to absolute perfection. In fact, he says... Uh, my grace is sufficient for you. He says, my power is made perfect in your, what's the word? Weakness. He says, in your weakness, that's when my power is perfected. And this is why, this is why I'm just so passionate about that. that. Man, we could be people that were not the best at this or that, but that we find incredible joy in that thing because our joy is in the creator of that thing. Are you all following me on this? Okay, I think that's all the words I need. I'm going to pray. Please pray with me. God, I pray that we would be people of grace, not perfection. God, I pray that the people in this room would give themselves grace. God, I pray that people in this room would receive your grace. I pray that people in this room would receive grace from others. That we wouldn't reject it. That we wouldn't fight it. That we wouldn't have this, this unrealistic, impossible standard of perfectionism. But that we, we would realize when you said, I am the gate, that you are protecting us from that. And, and Jesus, help us to recognize there are liars and there are thieves and there are robbers that are constantly coming after us, promising things they can never fulfill. And so I pray that we would be people that we would uh, push into you as the gate. You are our protector. And Lord, I just I want to say it, protect us from perfectionism. Lord, some people in this room, they are in bondage to it. Maybe they were raised under it. Uh, maybe they're on their way out of it. God, I pray that we'd be people that we have rejected and just send that lie back to hell. Lord, that there's incredible joy in perfect things, and that really you make things beautiful, even with the scars, even with the cracks, even with the with brokenness, that you make us complete, you make us satisfied. And so I pray we reject perfectionism in our children, we reject it in our spouses, we reject it in ourselves. I pray that we would have joy outside of our performance, because we want life, and we want it to the fullest, because that's what you promised.
relax, put on a pair of ice skates and go play hockey. Be the worst out there on the tennis court. Paint horrible pictures, <laughs> but that we would have fun and we would enjoy it and that we'd realize they're not even meant to satisfy.